Okay. Um, how's it going? Good. We ready for a little quiz? <laughs> That's not the right look. Did you say yay Shakespeare? All right. Okay. We won't have a quiz today, but um, <laughs> don't look so relieved. You should say a quiz. Yes, a chance to boost my grade because I did all the reading. That will be great. Hi. That would be, that would be um, a, a good <laughs> reaction. Okay, well, we're doing Act 5 next week. Then you have vacation for all sorts of catch-up, and then we have a um, kind of catch-up week. So if you're behind on the reading, uh, that's what President's Day was invented for, was to do the reading. So uh, you should do it. I think it's good. I think it, it actually looked like uh, people did a bunch of reading for Tuesday, and, um, and you were getting stuff out of it. Uh, which is which is good. I think that um, Hazlitt and Bloom are both really really good at not. This is what what they write is not how you should write papers. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not what we professors are looking for in student papers, unless you can write as well as they do and can say things that are so surprising as convincingly as they do. But they're not analytical. They're observational. And observation is good, but um, analysis is also where you change people's minds, not just observing. So uh, the same the same is probably true of Coleridge. At any rate, one of the things I think that Hazlitt's really good on and that Bloom follows Hazlitt in is uh, the, the contrast between Macbeth as a, as a hero villain, if that's the right term for him, which it probably isn't, which uh, Bloom certainly says it isn't, but uh, just for lack of a better term, we could call him a hero villain. Yeah? So in that case, in Hazlitt's, or Bloom, I don't quite remember which one, in one of their standpoints, if that is the case, could you say that Hamlet is his own? That's what we're doing, right? No. What's the clever reading? Macbeth. Yes. No, Hamlet's the two o'clock class. That's the one one Julia is in. (laughs) So, sorry. Uh, Brain fart aside, if we are to believe their standpoints, could we say that Macbeth is his own antagonist and protagonist? That his inner quarrels for killing Duncan is sort of his own, like, power struggle? So a kind of internal power struggle is um, within himself. Yeah, I, I think that the that that's a nice way of putting it. A, a way you could you could describe it is to say that Macbeth is, and this is kind of what Bloom says. Do people know who Harold Bloom is? Is this a name mm-hmm. that's familiar to people? Your professor, right? Yes, that's what's important about him. <laughs> and like a famous critic. Oh, that too. Because he was my professor, he became famous. <laughs> he became a critic. <laughs> yes, he became a critic just because of that. Yeah. Uh, actually, John Bird and I met in his class when we were undergraduates. That's where, that's the uh, first time we met. Um, what? Said I can't imagine what he was like back then. John Burt? Yes. Uh, much the same. <laughs> now that is why he became a critic. <laughs> yes. Um, so what Bloom is really good at describing is Macbeth's um, 
incredible imagination. That is, that he is always, he's, he's Bloom says he's not the uh, smartest, the most cognitively powerful <coughs> figure in Shakespeare by a long shot. That is, that if, you, if you're looking, if you, if you want cognitive power, the hero with the greatest cognitive power, the figure with the greatest cognitive power in the tragedies is, for Bloom, is Hamlet. And I think that's probably accurate that Hamlet is always thinking things through and he thinks at an extremely high level. And he may get things wrong depending on how you read Hamlet, but what you're seeing there is someone who is thinking really, really hard and thinking at a really high level. Macbeth is thinking really, really, really hard too, but he's just scaring himself with his thoughts. And he is the way he thinks has very little to do with analytic power. It more has to do with a kind of overwhelming sense of his own, uh, the word Bloom uses is imagination, an overwhelming sense of his own imagination that everything that um, can worry him does worry him, everything, at least in the first half of the play. Everything that can obsess him does obsess him. And one of the things that Hazlitt, and Bloom follows Hazlitt in doing, uh, one of the things that Hazlitt does really, really well, I think, is the contrast between Macbeth and Richard III. That is that Richard III is a person who knows what he's doing, who has a very, very clear-cut plans, <coughs> and has a very clear-cut goal. And Macbeth isn't like that at all. That Macbeth is as evil as Richard III, that, you know, on a, on a purely schematic comparison between them, you could say, here is someone who will do anything to become king, and that will include the murder of innocents and the murder of the rightful heirs to the throne and who will do this in order to become king and then does become king. Yeah? How do we know that King Duncan is a good king? <laughs> because Macbeth tells us. So, so that's a good question, but do you remember that this Duncan hath borne his faculties so meek hath been so clear in his great office that the angels would... Um, that his virtues would plead like angels, trumpet-tongued against the deep damnation of his taking off. So whether Macbeth's... What? That's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, Shakespeare had a way. Uh, he had a way with words. Um, the, um, this is, again, a question of dramatic exposition, which is that you could possibly imagine, as someone does seem to imagine, for example, that there is a, that if Macbeth were a true story, it might turn out that there are things that are said, that characters say in the play that are not true. But there is, the thing about fiction, this is, um, were any of you in English 11 with me? I don't think, oh yeah, you were, so yeah. So this this is a point that that I make in English Eleven, and that is an important point about about fiction in general. Where by fiction, what I mean is um, anything that is that 
any kind of literature which is not meant to be telling you something about the world. So, you know, a love poem can be fiction as well. But, so it's a very broad definition of fiction. But the thing about fiction that distinguishes it from referential discourse that is, discourse about something outside of the fiction. The thing about fiction that distinguishes it from referential discourse is that there is nothing in a work of fiction that you or that an ideal reader can't know when the work is, when they've read the work all the way through. You can't say that there is, that, that, there's some place to go for further evidence about what's really going on in a work of fiction. Now, can you maybe a little bit um, fudge that by looking at first drafts, for example, or looking <coughs> at letters, let's say, that an author wrote describing what she was trying to do in the novel that she just wrote? Yeah, but you don't necessarily have to believe them because what's being presented to you as a work of fiction is being presented to you as, as complete and finished, and everything you need to know is in that work of fiction. So in real life, Macbeth might have thought that Duncan was a great king, but he still might have killed him, and then we might be able to find out that, in fact, Duncan was a terrible king. If, it were, if Macbeth were a real person, which he's not, even though he may ultimately be based on someone real, if Duncan were a real person, which he's not, even though he's ultimately based on someone real, then the question, is Duncan a good king, is something that we could answer by looking outside of the play. And Macbeth thinking that Duncan was a good king, then that could be something who, that we didn't have to believe. But in a play, the only evidence that we have, besides Duncan himself, who's very, very gracious to Lady Macbeth about coming to um, their castle and saying, you know, I realize that you weren't expecting me and that this is a real pain in the ass to have to put up a king, that's, that's a good thing for a king to say. That is that it's the general thing that authoritative kings do is they think, I'm king, and they have to catch out of me, and it's all good. And they should be happy that they have to work their asses off to, um, get, to, to, make, to, to give me their best bed and to um, make sure that everything is done the way it should be done to a king because I'm honoring them, which is what Lady Macbeth says. You're honoring us. But Duncan is, very, is, is really lovely and gracious in his... Um, in, in the scenes in which we see him. He's always gracious and always lovely. But if that's not enough, what Shakespeare does, and this is something you can do in fiction and have it counted on, if that's not enough, then what Shakespeare does is he makes the very person who is going to kill the king acknowledge what a great king he is. And the only reason for that acknowledgement, there's never only one reason for things in Shakespeare, but the, the first level reason for that acknowledgement is to make the horror of what Macbeth is doing all the worse. He is not ridding Scotland of a king who's doing bad things. He's ridding Scotland of a king who he acknowledges, everyone acknowledges, is a good king. To give another example of this, 
there is one critic who thinks that Lennox may be a bad guy, maybe in Macbeth's pay. That is, remember Lennox is the one who says one should not ride too late, um, or that that um, um, the would have done anyone's heart good to see Macbeth kill the guards who ha who had failed to protect um, the king and. Uh, of course, Macbeth had to kill them, and then Banquo was invited to dinner, and look what happened to him. Um, and he's clearly, there's a scene in which Lennox is being really, do you guys remember the scene? Um, in which Lennox is being viciously ironic. Let's just go to it for a minute. <laughs> Can someone find it? I'll find it too, but. Um, what act might it be in? Um, act three, I believe. Um, okay, who wants to be Lennox? God, do I hate this Kindle <coughs> library? That's what I want. Um, so, who's going to be Lennox, and who's going to be your Lennox, and you can be the other Lord? Okay, okay. go go for it. My former speeches have but get your thoughts. Only I say things have been strangely born. The gracious Duncan was pitied of Macbeth, married he was dead. And the right valiant Banquo walked too late, whom you may say, if please you, Fleance killed, or Fleance fled. Men must not walk too late. Who cannot want for thought how monstrous it was for Malcolm and for Dunblane to kill their gracious father? Damned fact. How it did grieve Macbeth. Did he not straight in pious rage the two delinquents tear that were the slaves of drink and thralls of sleep? Was not that nobly done? Aye, and wisely too. For twould have angered any heart alive to hear the men. So what's, it, what's, what's his point about those lines? Yeah. Um, it's, he's like, he's basically <coughs> saying like, oh, well, I love Macbeth. He really acted very nobly. But like everyone was drunk and like asleep and like, but like he acted really, really nobly. <laughs> no one would have wanted to hear them say no, but like everyone was drunk and asleep. So like, but like we love Macbeth. <laughs> yeah, and when he says "twould have angered any heart alive to hear the men deny it," what's he saying they would have done if Macbeth hadn't killed them? Yeah, yeah. Even if they did do it, wouldn't they have said that? Anyway? Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's the point. But it's it's. But what he's doing is he's bringing the denial into prominence at that moment. So, you know, it's a really nice moment. That is, of course they would have denied it, and of course, as you say, um, it would have, that if they'd done it and then they denied it, um, it would have angered any heart alive. Um, but he's pointing out that he's absolutely certain they would have denied it, that they wouldn't have confessed it, um, which is another possibility. That is, um, you could say, uh, was that not hastily done, which Macbeth himself acknowledges, but he says who can be both um, cool and judgmental and filled with anger at the same moment, when he just he says, oh, I'm so sorry I killed them, which is a, actually a pretty hilarious moment. Um, he says, well, it's thought the guards did it, and then Macbeth comes in and says, yeah, I shouldn't have killed them before they confessed. Um, and... Um, but that means that confession might be possible. 
And um, what Lennox is saying is, no, it's clear that under all circumstances they would have denied it. Yeah. Would they have believed in those days that, like, confession was right due to, like, piety and, like, God would have, like, appreciated it? I don't, I don't know what Christianity was. Yeah, but they would have believed it, but they would have also believed that you can get someone to confess. No, by no, no, that's what I'm asking. Torturing would, them. they believe? Oh, that, yeah, that too. But <laughs> I, I'm just wondering if, like, they believe in sort of religious piety sort of being like a guilty conscience almost, would they have believed in that and like confession? I'm just curious. Like, um, so who's the, who's they? Uh, like the people in these times, like with the Wait, which like, times? In um, Macbeth's times, in Macbeth's not in Shakespeare's times. time. No, 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 oh, okay. Macbeth's times. Yeah. Would they believe that like a guilty conscience? Like, did they, would they believe that people would confess of their own like, you know? So that would, yeah, you, I think that's think who, they would have actually confessed if they did it. I think that's a really good question. I mean, the 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 short answer is yes. Um, that it's a it's a play in which everyone's a Catholic, and do you know who's king of England at the time? Edward, Edward the confessor. the confessor. So um, yeah, so confession was there's actually a cult of confession at the time. Um, Matt, then then um, Julie. Uh, going back to your point, um, that kind of sets me back to the scene in uh, Hamlet, mm-hmm. where uh, Claudius. Uh, confesses about killing Hamlet Sr., but in the end, it's not a since it's not a sort of sincere confession. Yeah, he wants like, it to be, but it isn't. And then he's like, I feel better about it now, psych. So, <laughs> in a way, it's kind of like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. What were you going to say? Um, along with the religious aspect, I also don't know anything about Christianity, but when they... Um, If they were guilty, yeah. Okay. Yeah, no, and that's that's one reason that Macbeth is officially apologetic about it. Uh, probably, probably not the main reason, but one reason. But go back to yeah, Sun Kyung. Well, I, I was just going to bring up the um, the death of the Dane of Calder. Mm-hmm. Which yes. He was frank about it. Like he confessed. Right. So like that. Like the manner of his dying, like kind of redeemed all the wrongs of his life. Yeah. Yeah. So, do people remember that that the way Cotter died? Um, he died as though he'd, he as though he'd been studied to throw the dearest thing he owned away as toward a, tr- a trifle. Um, so, the death of the the execution of the Thane of Cotter, which makes Macbeth Thane of Cotter, you can ask why is there that description of the previous Thane, and uh, what is why why does Shakespeare put that into the play, and um, I think there are a couple of reasons for it. One is that, well, I, I, I don't know. I think, it's, I think it's worth thinking the reasons for it. But remember that there are two thanes of Cawder who go against the king in the play, um, the original thane of Cawder and then Macbeth. And so the, the comparison of the two thanes of Cawder is something that will be in our minds that is, that Macbeth is doing what the previous Thane had <coughs> attempted to do. And therefore, there might be a sense <coughs> that there's a repetition of the dynamic between 
the rebellious thing of Cotter and his ultimate comeuppance in both cases. And so what we might be being asked to consider in Act 5 is the extent to which the description of the first thing of Cotter, that he threw away the dearest thing he owned as, twer- as, as though it were a trifle, whether that can apply as a description to the death of Macbeth at the end of the play, or whether you, what were you going to say? I just think dies. Oh, sorry, yeah. No, it's, it's a spoiler. Um, the, the other possibility, of course, is that it's contrast, but it's something that we are at least being asked to juxtapose. The, the description of someone whom we never see, the Thane of Cawder, and the, dis- the fact that the king says, remember what the, 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 what the king says about why he was surprised by the Thane of Cawder? There's no <clears throat> art. Oh, there's no art in deception. Um, kind of, yeah. There's no art to find the mind's construction in the face. He was a man on whom I had built an absolute trust. And so what it means is that you can't tell what people are really thinking by looking at them. They can look honest, but turn out, um, as Hamlet says, one may smile and smile and be a villain still. Duncan's version is you can trust people, um, you can look into their faces um, and build an absolute trust on them and in them, and then they try to kill you. And then the very next thing he says, so where's Macbeth? <laughs> and the irony there, of course, is that the, uh, the next thing of Cotter is also going to be someone in whom Duncan reposes an absolute trust and, him. and who succeeds. succeeds in killing him. So that, so, so, so that comparison, but also the idea of, of confession when you know you're wrong, certainly applies to the first thing of Cotter, the question is, to what extent does it apply to the second thing of quarter? Yeah. I, I think I, I agree with Abdul on this point because um, the way Malcolm interprets it, um, the, the death of the first um, thing is that it's, it's a kind of, there's a religious overtone in, in his interpretation that he kind of relinquishes all these like, earthly everizing, you know, like he just submits to this, um, you know, like the, the look. It, it, it's right to confess and die, you know, like, but um, whereas in Macbeth's case, it's more like a Right. So what so what Lionel Abel is is talking about Macbeth as as demonized, as a fal- as a true demon, where Lady Macbeth is a false demon, is that what that means is not that he has studied to throw away the dearest thing he um, owns as though it were a trifle, but that it's no longer dear to him. That is, that it's not something he cares about at all. And that would be uh, the difference between demonization, where demonization doesn't mean demonization. It's not like when we demonize our president by saying that he has done bad things. Um, demonization means that you have become, in a sense, inhuman. And not inhuman in a, it can be a bad sense, but it doesn't have to be a bad sense. It means that human anxieties, human fears or hopes no longer have a hold on you. That um, as, the, as the French philosopher 
um, uh, follower of Descartes, Julinx, put it, um, where you are worth, it's, he said, it, it's, it's a Latin tag, it's a great one, it's um, ubi nihil wallace ibi nihil wellis. So it's a little pun in Latin. It means where you are worth nothing, ubi nihil wallace, where you are worth nothing, ibi there nihil wellis. There you should want nothing. So if there's no, if there's nothing valuable for you anymore in yourself, in the world, in um, the future, then there's nothing more to wish for, nothing more to want, and that's a relief. That should be regarded as, if relief mattered to you anymore, that should be regarded as relief. But it means that you no longer have to suffer where suffering always takes the form for us humans of wanting some alternative to what we have. Any kind of suffering has within it a component of a frustrated wish, whether it's I wish that person still loved me, to I wish that person were still alive, to I wish my tooth weren't hurting, to I wish this class were over. Um, in all cases, a component of suffering is a wish for an alternative. And for the demonized figure, the way Lionel Abel is describing um, the demonized figure, that there is no alternative. There's, there isn't even a possible alternative that they are considering. And therefore, a, um, a major element of suffering is not present. And it's not that there, it's not relief because they wish for relief. It's not the granting of a wish for relief. But if you think, the, the figure who imagines himself demonized in King Lear, but isn't, who's, who's also a false demon, at least at that point, is, is um, Edgar at the beginning of Act Four, when he says that um, um, he's hit rock bottom, um, that um, he, he is welcoming the thou, um, unsubstantial air that I embrace, the wretch that thou hast blown unto the worst owes nothing to thy blasts. And what he's saying is the melancholy change to be worst, the most dejected thing in fortune, stands still in esperance, lives not in fear. The melancholy change is from the best. The worst returns to laughter. And so he says, I've hit bottom and therefore there's nothing for me to worry about. And then he turns out to be a false demon because the very next line is, and Shakespeare just loves, loves these sorts of entrances, just when you think you understand how things are or you make a final proclamation as to how things are, then someone will come in to completely screw up what you think. Um, like, so how's Macbeth doing? Or in this case, enter Gloucester blind. Mm -hmm. And then he says, but who comes here? My father poorly led. I am worse than e'er I was. So he thinks he's hit rock bottom, but he's wrong. Mm -hmm. And if you never boast that you've hit rock bottom if you're not absolutely certain that you have. And that, that's the situation he's, he is in. So that idea of 
diamondization as no longer caring and really no longer caring and not even caring that you don't care. That's <coughs> what La what Abel is talking about. Yeah. But Kurtzel say that even though he, uh, Macbeth no longer cares because uh, the world not um, satisfy him, but still, couldn't we say that, I mean, if, if uh, Abel was kind of basing his argument on kind of the, Yeah. Kind of negating all this will, and um, could could you like argue that that is still the case with Macbeth? It's not just a complete abjection, but it's because it, then you know like it, it's not it's not forceful enough. You know, like it, it's, it's yeah. No, I don't think it's abjection. And um, I don't think, but I don't think, even though the term comes from the symposium, the, the right. idea of the daimon, I don't think, I mean, the way, the way it's used since, I don't think it's either um, abjection or some possibility of transcendence. I think that it is what Bloom calls a kenosis, that is an, a complete emptying out of the self. There's no self left anymore to care about. So if you think what it means to care about the self is it's the self that cares about the self. If you care about yourself, it's you, yourself, that is caring about itself. But if the self is sufficiently emptied, which is really hard to do, I mean, it's really hard to represent. Um, but if the self is sufficiently em emptied, as it possibly is with the fool in King Lear, as it is with Antigone, maybe, as it possibly is with Macbeth, then the self's not caring about itself. The self doesn't care about itself because there's no self not only to be cared about, but no self to care. And achieving that non-caring. It's not, it's not stoicism and it's not um, serenity, but it is a kind of invulnerability. So yeah. are, are you saying that Gloucester um, is that abjectness that's not uh, the demonization? Yeah, yeah, Gloucester yeah. would certainly be abject without okay. being demonized. Yeah. And yeah, I think that's absolutely true. Yeah. But isn't that largely based on, or because the Macbeth thinks he, no one born can harm Macbeth? Yeah, so he is, that's, it's certainly the case that Macbeth is led to a sort of indifference because he believes himself to be invulnerable. And it's only when he finds out, you could say it's, that what we're seeing in Macbeth is a is a vector or a direction in where his, to, to which his character is going, and if you trace his character, this is still going back to this question of confession, um, if, and and to 
also to, to Lennox. But if you trace Macbeth's character, it's important for a dramatic, for, the, for Shakespeare just as a playwright, to have all the really good things Macbeth does happen off stage. Because if we saw what a courageous warrior he was, rather than hearing about it, that he was Bologna's bridegroom and so on, if we actually saw him acting courageously, then it would be really, really hard to turn him into the um, fearful and um, hysterical figure that he is at the start of the play. So we have to know one thing about him, which is that he is fearless in violence, in situations of violence, but then also know another thing about him, which is that the character we meet, or experience another thing about him, not know another thing about him, but experience another thing about him. So on the one hand, we know that he is a person of supreme courage. On the other hand, we experience him as a person of very great fearfulness. And among the things he's fearful, as Bloom says, of his own imagination. And that is something that we don't have to reconcile, or maybe an easier way to put it would be to say that an actor doesn't have to reconcile in the first act of the play. That is, if you imagine, if you imagine staging Macbeth so that Macbeth is just a, this amazing, courageous fighter who is, who is um, laughing at, in, in the face of death, and then have him... Um, just shaking with, with hysteria with, 10 minutes later, that is something that no actor is going to be able to pull off. And the reason no actor is going to be able to pull off is it's not a plausible um, human being. But instead what happens, and this is, this is something that fictionists are very, very good at doing, again, especially in the opening of a dramatic performance of a movie or a play, is that we have two irreconcilable descriptions of Macbeth, but they aren't being given to us in the same register. So they are, we're not asked to reconcile them. No one is thinking, how can Macbeth be such a good warrior if he's so hysterical? That's not what your, your experience of the play is, you know certain facts about Macbeth, which is that he deserves to be Thane of Cawder, and he was extremely courageous in battle. And you also experience the character of Macbeth as someone who's entirely different from that. You guys have all had the experience of finally meeting a Facebook friend or you know, a social media friend who you really like on social media, and then they're totally different from what you thought they were going to be. <laughs> and... Um, Right. For me, for me, it was the opposite. I finally met someone who I'd argued with for like years in real life, and not only was he like four ten, but he was just like the nicest guy. Yeah. One, one, one of them that I've ever met. Okay. Well, that's good, but that's really good. But but the um, but the interesting opposite to that is when you meet someone who you had a picture of, and they're not at all like their picture. But then it can be the case that you realize that the picture that you have of them in real life is maybe not the best picture, and the social media version of them is actually truer to who they are than your experience of them in real life. I mean, I think this is, in fact, an extremely uh, central moral point that some literature tries tries to address directly, although I'm not sure Macbeth is. Um, but 
the, the, the central moral point about life is that most of the people that you're around most of the time um, you think are no great shakes, but they <clears throat> are in fact very great shakes. It's only that in ordinary life, the way we interact with other people is in a very shallow way, and we ascribe the shallowness of our interaction to um, the shallowness of their personality. And it's a natural thing to do. There's nothing wrong with that. That's what we do as human beings. You can't possibly pay the kind of attention that you would need to pay to other people to understand that they are as deep as you are and as deep as your friends are. But sometimes on social media, you can get that, and you can get that in literature. You can get a sense of that depth, which you get very disappointed by them when you meet them in real life, but that's because the real-life meeting is, in fact, the false relationship. And the social media relationship might, in fact, be the deeper and truer relationship. So if you've ever had that second-step um, experience of meeting someone from social media in real life, and thinking, boy, did I get that person wrong. I was completely um, projecting onto them, or as we psychoanalysts say, transferring onto them. Um, that is transferring all sorts of depth into them that they didn't really have. That's an experience that, that most of us have had. You had the opposite, but you've probably had that experience as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah of course. But if anything, but, this discussion makes me think perhaps makes me change my opinion on that guy oh, who shit. I met who was nicer than I thought that he was. Oh, no. <laughs> Damn. Um, well, what can you do? <laughs> but the second step is, is um, that I hope some of you have had is when you interact with them on social media again after you meet them in real life, um, realizing, no, that social media interaction, that's the real one. And that time that I met them in real life um, and in which I was kind of disappointed, I shouldn't take that too seriously because it's the really cool person or the deep person or the intense person that I met on social media. They're, they, they're still there. And um, it, was the, it was the real life interaction which was misleading. And um, so have you guys had that experience? Never? Oh, okay. Well, yeah. Then, then you meet them in real life, and they don't seem to be murderers. But next thing you know, you're murdered. But no, I don't. I don't mean Tinder. I mean. Um, <laughs> I don't meet people from the internet. We were raised being told like, don't meet people on the internet. Like, cause, yeah, like, but so you meet someone. We're raised that way, but I haven't. I think I. I like slowly became, like, like changed my opinion on that. So you got into Brandeis, and you were told that there's a Facebook page for new Brandeis admits. Yeah. yeah. I met them in real life when I got here. But you, you didn't talk to them at all? No. Okay. I tried to talk to my roommate, but he's, like, the least responsible person. Yeah. I tried to talk to my roommate, and she didn't really talk to me until yes, and we, we, like, met in person. Okay, but wait, 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 wait. Do any of you have intense Facebook friends you've never met? Yes. Yes. One hundred percent. Yes. Okay. Is this a gender thing? Probably. I, 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 it could vary. Yeah. 
Okay, but I have intense Facebook friends I haven't met who are women, so it can't... And so have I, but it, I mean, I think it's just subjective. Sure I, know sure? men who, I know men who have... I am because some of them are sufficiently public figures that I know who they are as public figures. I but, feel like a public figure is different than a private. Yeah. No, no, no. Sufficiently public. Not. Yeah, I, I know what you're. I know what you're talking about. I think that this is the reason why I got to be like less wary of that is because like information now. Originally, it was like you never wanted to put out anything. Like they always discourage you from even like putting out a picture of yourself. Yeah. Now everything is now everything is so public, like on Facebook and stuff like that, that it it's hard to get if if it's not the person that you think it is then damn, they made a great effort okay, to find but, but, but just, just very simple, that we're, we're going a little far afield, but just, but it's okay. Um, I actually thought I would want to say this explicitly in some class some, some time, that uh, some people have been trained to think that you shouldn't be digressive in a literature class, and I think that is totally wrong. I think <laughs> the whole point about literature is that where it takes you in digression is all over life, and that's a good thing, not a bad thing. Truthfully, I think that if there wasn't that same digression, then uh, all of John Burke's classes would be 10 minutes long. Yeah. Um, well, people said that about my classes, too. Um, but, no, but I, I just want to go on record explicitly as being pro-digression. And um, because I think that's what, that that's literature should um, lead to digressions. I have to say I would have loved to find out now that you are anti-digression. Like, <laughs> <laughs> We'd really be screwed then. Yeah. Um, it won't happen. But just... The simple situation, which is that you are friends in real life with someone, and you're also friends with them on Facebook, and then you become friends with some of their Facebook friends who they're friends with in real life, but you're not. That's never happened. I don't accept those Facebook friend requests. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You get a friend request from someone that has like 45 mutual friends with you and does studies at Randy's University. No, I did that once. I did that once because I thought it was. I did that once at the beginning of last year. Because um, they thought it was a freshman, I was like, "Oh, they're friends with a bunch of my pe with a bunch of my friends." The guy tried to FaceTime me. It was an old man. He showed me his penis. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say that. Um, I, 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 no, I, I know. I, but I had. I never did it before. This is the first person who saw like, "Oh, forty-five mutual friends goes to Brandeis. Never seen him around. But it's the beginning of sophomore year. It's fine." No, it wasn't. Yeah. And I haven't done it since. I didn't do it before. This was literally the only exception. Yes. <laughs> well, I'm very sorry to hear that. It was good. Um, it was not fun. Yes. Now, I know, I know that's a thing. Um, all right, getting back to Macbeth, <laughs> since I'm against digression. Yeah. Well, I just don't find that irreconcilable at all, like uh, that the fact that he's uh, this hero in battle and fearful at home, and it seems like very similar to Coriolanus and mm -hmm. Othello also, yeah, you know, these yeah. heroes who have this underbelly of vulnerability. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. And But it's nevertheless the case that what we see is the vulnerable part, and what we hear is the is the heroic part. So Coriolanus is heroic, but off stage, um, he goes into the city, and um, then he comes back, and he single handedly has defeated the entire city. But we don't see that. Um, we see it in the movie, but we don't see it in in the play. Um, in the same way, we know uh, we know all the stories about Othello, um, but we don't see him being amazing in battle, 
and we know the same stories about Macbeth, but we don't see him being amazing in battle. Uh, we probably even know the same thing about Hamlet's father, who smote the, the um, slighted poleaxe on the ice and did um, all these amazing things in war, but we never see what he's done in war. And so the um, just as, as pure um, uh, appeal to an, to an audience's response to a character, what Shakespeare is doing is he's giving us two different, they're, of course they're reconcilable, but he's giving us two different facets of a character. And in order to do that, he does it in two different um, uh, lines of communication. One is that we see the character private and scared or incompetent or foolish or um, anything else that would prevent you from having confidence in that character. And then we see, um, we hear about the public greatness of the character. And because they're not coming to us in the same register, we're not aware of a potential contradiction that would be very, very hard to be seeing both. You could make seeing both the point of your of your movie or your play. Um, you know, if you think of that, if you think of something like the Hurt Locker, um, where we see the character in Iraq who's just completely courageous and and um, have people seen the Hurt Locker, Catherine Bigelow? Um, anyhow, he's in Iraq. He's really courageous. He's he's defusing bombs. He's impressive in every way. And then we see him back in the U.S. where he is um, fearful and incompetent because this is not a world that he can live in anymore. So you can make that the point of your movie. Um, but it's not the point of Macbeth. It's that Shakespeare wants to give us two vastly different um, reference points for thinking about Macbeth. And in order to make them seem not to clash with each other without making the fact that they don't clash the central theme of the play, or at least the first half of the play. He simply does it, he conveys the information to us through, through two different media, um, sight and sound, the play and the narrative that other characters in the play are giving. Um, yeah? I, I just another psychodynamic point, which is and we see this in characters we're fully aware of, is that people who are fearful and vulnerable often present themselves as great warriors yeah. and uh, aggressive personalities, yeah. bullying others right. out of their own fears of their vulnerability. That's right. And if Macbeth had been presented that way, then we would read his courage as... Um, uh, a kind, a kind of denial, or a kind of um, false front, and that would make his friendship with Banquo not work, because he and Banquo both have to be figures who are um, really confident in each other's friendship, because they are really confident of each other's courage. So I think I think what you're saying is absolutely right. But and it's it not. It doesn't apply here in yeah. the same way. But it's just it's important to be aware of it. It's oh, yeah. not necessarily irreconcilable. In fact. Oh no no no! It's not. Yeah. It's not irreconcilable. I'm just saying. And and I think I think it is in Macbeth. I think that's part of the point of Macbeth. But I think that it is. Um, 
for what Shakespeare is trying to do, which is to make believable Macbeth's fearfulness while also making believable Macbeth's uh, being rewarded as he is and Macbeth's centrality to other people, that everyone talks about Macbeth because he's so amazing, to do both of those just as a, a matter of pure theatrical practice. He has to do one as narrative and the other as as actual exposition. Nicole? Um, I think one example of being like being actually fearful but putting on the outward show is Lady of Force is like Lady Macbeth. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing which I was going to ask was about from a while ago about Edgar and Macbeth. Yeah. Um, like, could the difference, I guess, be that in Edgar's case when he says, like, he's hit rock bottom, like, there's kind of a vested emotion in the term rock bottom, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas with Macbeth, when he says, like, I've stepped so far in blood that it would be the same to go to this way. To return where his tediousness go or Yeah, it's like there's apathy and indifference there, so. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so Edgar thinks he's achieved apathy and indifference, and he hasn't. Um, but Macbeth really does seem to be getting there, which is, you know, hard for a tragedy, but, um, but impressive for a tragedy as well. Yeah, please. Um, so you were saying that the image of a public figure is not necessarily, like what he presents is not necessarily what he really is in, from the inside. And this can also add to some, um, like, the depth of a figure or the depth of a character which can only can also be um, referred as the duality of men, like in Full Metal Jacket? Um, yeah. Okay, nice. Um, so we're in what, what part of Full Metal Jacket? Like um, the guy who bullied the, the guy who suicided. Yeah, okay, is yes. also yeah, yeah. the is main also men, men, mentor. Mentor. Yeah, mentor yeah. of, of, of And that kind of seemingly un, uh, like clash, clashing um, personality somehow just get reconciled really well. Yeah, and I think it's it's that um, a lot of what Shakespeare is doing. I'm not sure how how strongly I want to put this, but. I think maybe Macbeth would be one of the strongest ways to see this, that a lot of our sense of our own personalities is a sense that we get from others and that we commit to, and that um, there's, uh, there's a part of you which is the part that would be the demonized part if, if God forbid, you were ever demonized. Um, but there's a part of you which is uh, kind of purely observing everything that you do and everything about you. And if you've ever had the experience, um, I think you have to go to early childhood to remember this experience most clearly. But if you ever had the experience of just weeping over some frustration, um, just being really, really, you know, just, just crying or bawling in front of your parents. Um, and you can remember the part of you that was curious about the fact that you were doing that, that somehow very deep in you, possibly at some moments the deepest part of you, even when you're expressing intense emotion, 
isn't feeling that emotion, but is curious about that emotion. And it's as though, it's not that you're not feeling it, you are, otherwise you wouldn't be weeping. But there's a part of you, an element in you, that is curious, that you, that you could scream so loudly, that you sound just like someone in the movies, um, something like that. And if you've ever had that experience, um, I think Shakespeare is really interested in that, in the way that often what it means to be a decent human being is to embrace or affirm um, a version of yourself that has a, a kind of the personality that, that is the right personality to have with other people and to be that part of yourself. But the thing that is affirming or deciding to be that part of yourself isn't quite your center. And your center is the one who's under some moral pressure not to stay at the center, but to be a human being, as, as people sometimes say. Come on, be a human being about this. Um, but that's not an empty, you know, that's not just a metaphor. Uh, that can be something that's psychologically real, deciding or becoming a human being. Um, sometimes being relieved that you're not as estranged from the world as you were in, or as you remember yourself being in early childhood. Um, and the, the Macbeth may be going the other way. That is, it may be the case that Macbeth has worked really hard to be a human being, and it turns out not to work for him, <laughs> and um, that uh, that's the direction towards demonization that, that you go in Macbeth. Lady Macbeth is working hard not to be a human being. That's the unsex me here moment. Um, but it may be that they're crossing over in that sense, that she's working, and that's what makes her a false daimon, where Macbeth is a true one. Yeah. Um, this is also off of what you said about um, Edgar and King Lear. Um, could there also be, like, a sense just because Macbeth is more demonized than Edgar is, like, that Macbeth got to that point, like, through <coughs> his own action? Like, he was, he had these outside pressures, but, like, he did all these things that got him to that point, whereas Edgar's kind of been, like, shoved to that point mm -hmm. by Edmund, like, yeah. Like, everything bad that happened to Edgar is kind of Edmund's fault, so, like, um, actually, no, the, his father getting blinded wasn't, wasn't, or maybe it was. That was Edmund's fault. Yeah, that, that was Edmund's fault. Yeah. Okay, everything was Edmund's fault then, and so yeah. Edgar didn't really actively do anything to get himself in that situation, mm -hmm. so, like, he's, he isn't at that emotional state because all that just kind of happened to him rather than him putting himself there like Macbeth yeah, did. Yeah, and, and there's, there's a suggestion in King Lear that I won't litigate now, but that Edmund is actually doing what Edgar wants to do, and, uh, that, and that what Edgar won't admit to himself he wants to do until the very end. Well, Edgar doesn't need to because he... No, he doesn't need to to, be, to become the next um, Earl of Gloucester. Yeah. But the extent to which he hates his father mm -hmm. but can't admit it to himself mm -hmm. is um, that that's certainly going on. It doesn't mean he doesn't also love his father, but the extent to which he can't admit um, his anger at his father to himself. The relation between the two brothers is really, really fascinating and mm -hmm. I think under thought 
in criticism of King Lear, but I think it's uh, they they could have been besties, and they weren't. But and that is in a sense Edgar's tragedy and Edmund's as well. Um, Cassie, you were going to say something. Yeah. So, how do you reconcile what Quincy was saying about like? how we need to sort of empathize or empathize these sorts of instead with Macbeth as like a human figure with the idea that he's also being pushed in an inhuman direction towards this like state of dynamization because I think I'm not arguing that Shakespeare doesn't maintain stakes and like emotional investment in his character as you go on but like thinking about it sort of in a more general way I would imagine that pushing characters towards a point where they no longer are really capable of caring about anything would interfere with our ability to care about what happens to them, specifically because um, a lot of what the one who was talking about diamondization um, talked about is the fact that like it's not just Macbeth who's reached that state by the final fight, but also Macduff. Mm -hmm. like all of his family yeah. is dead and he doesn't care about anything anymore. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm not arguing that there isn't like emotional power to that final confrontation, because I think there certainly is. I'm just not sure how it manages to happen. Like I'm impressed but confused, because if neither one of them cares about anything, the fact that we care about how this fight comes out and like we care about the characters. Do we all, care how the fight comes out? We care, I think we kind of, on one level we do, which is that we think Macduff should get his vengeance and that Macbeth um, is, it would be inappropriate, it would be not only inappropriate but ridiculous for him to win. But I think that on another level, it's, um, it makes no difference that Macduff wins. That is, we don't say, oh yay, the tyrant's <laughs> dead, that's, that's fantastic. Um, it doesn't help Macduff, and it doesn't harm Macbeth that Macduff wins. Um, that's where it was going. The, 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 there's something so fatal about the end of the play where the idea, again, another way maybe of putting this is to say that the idea of fatality, you know, it's, it's uh, if people say I'm a fatalist or, you know, there's, there is, uh, um, there's, a, there's an air of fatality that hangs over this decision, um, or something like that. The idea of fatality is always um, something that we want to protest. That is, it may come out like this, but I wish it wouldn't. So that's, so the idea of fatality is also an idea, you could say, which is um, contains within it as its affective, not quite emotional, but affective experience is our own desire to resist something even if it's fated to happen. But if you get pure fatality, that would be the same thing as demonization. And at the end of Macbeth, it's, it's pure fate. It's pure fatality that we're, we are seeing play out there. Macduff <coughs> is going to kill Macbeth. We know it's going to happen. Macbeth knows it's going to happen. Macduff knows it's going to happen. You know, obviously it's... Um, one of the things I hope you notice that Hazlitt um, said is you can't really perform Macbeth anymore um, and probably never could perform Macbeth. And he's one of the romantic critics who just thought Shakespeare shouldn't be seen on stage because it ruined it. And, um, you know, Hazlitt explicitly says uh, no one could possibly play Macbeth. Um, and that's why you have to read it. 
Um, so on stage, yeah, that would be played as it, it couldn't but be played as um, passionate. That last scene has to be played passionately. The way Patrick Stewart does it, uh, it's, it's actually quite amazing, is he's completely exhausted. And exhaustion <coughs> might be another word for diamondization. He's completely exhausted. And uh, there's one, when, when he does the Tomorrow Tomorrow speech, which we'll talk about next week or after break, but when he does the Tomorrow Tomorrow speech, um, this is an astonishing thing for an actor to do. He's wiped his, his, his forehead and his bald head with a handkerchief, and then he just drops into a seat exhausted, and he sees his handkerchief in his hand, and he just puts it over his face, so we don't even see his face. I mean, imagine an actor on stage just deciding not to be seen. And then he does tomorrow and tomorrow through this handkerchief. And it's not funny. It's funny to recount it. But it's, his exhaustion is so great that he's, he, he gives up being um, a charismatic figure on stage, which makes him all the more charismatic. Then he... Um, Macduff comes in and he says, I have too much blood, and, and, and their fight is with guns. It's set in an era of guns, and uh, it's basically early 20th century is the, is the feel of it. Um, and Macduff comes in and he says, I have too much blood of yours on my hands already, and he's got a gun in his hand, and he just looks at it and puts it to his temple and pulls the trigger. But he's out of ammunition. So... He tries to, he's just, you know, I'm done. But nope, he's not done. Um, because, because things are so depleted that he doesn't even have any ammunition left. And then he and Macduff have their fight, and it's a very understated fight. And um, there's no excitement about it at all. You know, imagine the climactic fight. You know, Laertes and Hamlet, that's exciting. Macbeth and Macduff, no excitement about the climactic fight, which is going to kill the main character in the slightest. And I think that's that's good. That's right. Yeah, Cassie, then. So then, does death serve as like a relief from the state of dionization because it is like a it's specifically human, or I guess a specifically mortal like characteristic, like Macbeth isn't really able to experience like any of the any of the things that we would traditionally think make somebody human, like he doesn't care about any of the people around him anymore, he doesn't really care what happens mm -hmm. to him, and he doesn't even really care about the prospect of dying, but the fact that he is able to die is like sort of like a biological signifier yeah. of the fact that he isn't truly like an inhuman figure. Yeah, yeah. Or that, again, the way I would prefer to put it is is that whatever it is that makes a person a person um, is the fact of mortality doesn't undo that. In other words, it's your, I, think you, I think where I wouldn't put it your way is that you're integrating the fact that he dies to the fact that he is a mind. And you're saying, so it turns out to be a mortal mind. But I think the mind part becomes indifferent to its own mortality. And therefore, yeah, it is mortal. He does die. Um, but, but as a mind, he's indifferent to the mortality, which is nevertheless externally true about the mind that it will die. Um, but that, it, that's a, I think that's what tragedy is about, but it's a really hard thing to say 
in in a, in a straightforward way. I, th I think that there are people who write about this really well, but it's really, really hard to to describe it well. But to experience it, you know, I, I feeling that we're probably not experiencing it differently. It's just the way we're trying to describe it. Um, Nicole? I think maybe one reason that we're able to empathize with Macbeth, even though he's like this larger-than-life diamondized figure, is because like no one knows what it's like to be diamondized, so no one knows what it's like to be like Macbeth. Mm -hmm. But we all know what it's like to experience a world where no one knows what it's like to be us. Yeah. And so yeah. therefore yeah, we know good. exactly what it's like to be Macbeth. Yeah. Um, also, like I guess like death is kind of a sleep, so it is kind of a relief from exhaustion and that kind of Oh, sense. okay, nice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, good. Um, Okay, so back to Linux. Um, what th this is? Th no, I th I th this is this is part of the point of the digression, which is of digression in general, which is you know Swift has a chapter by the way in Tale of a Tub, which is called Digression Upon Digressions. Um, anyhow, uh, that was a digression. Uh, part of the point is that you can look at something which is which is very practical in a theatrical sense and um, see what its practicality is leading to in the play. So we were, we were talking about a very practical point. Um, uh, the, the question uh, whether we are supposed to believe that Duncan was a good king, and practically the answer is yes. That is because the only information that we have about Duncan is coming from Macbeth, and when information is unchallenged in a work of fiction, then that information is part of the background of the events that do happen rather than one of the things that ought to be challenged. So you can just take that as an axiom about how fiction works, that unchallenged information, if it's never challenged, it can be challenged. Uh, uh, there's a fantastic book where there's a character named Judith who's really, really important. The narrator keeps saying, here was my relation to Judith, and sometimes I talk to her roommate Claudia. And, um, and at the very end of the book, he says to Claudia something about Judith, and he says, um, um, that's what Judith said yesterday, something like that. And Claudia says, who's Judith? Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> and um, there's a place where some information is challenged. But if the information is never challenged, then it's what it's it's the um, um, foundation in which the conflicts actually are are playing out upon. But the foundation itself isn't. There's no conflict with that foundation. Yeah. So if we were to challenge the foundation of Duncan being a good king, which you've already more than proven that he is, could do we still say that Macbeth is a villain? if he is indeed a bad king? Or would that, in fact, change his whole, I suppose, mental thinking about the justification yeah. for killing Duncan? Well, I think he would have to say something different about the justification. In other words, he would have to sound more Hamlet-like. Mm -hmm. That is, um, besides this, Duncan hath been such a tyrant, and um, you know the whole thing that, that Malcolm says about himself as what a bad king he would be, uh, you would have to re- direct that towards Duncan 
and have him actually be that sort of person and then have someone like Macduff defending him nevertheless, saying, no, no, there are enough women in Scotland for you to um, sleep with anyone you want and um, without ever um, uh, having a Me Too moment. And um, that, and um, then he would say, well, yeah, but I'm going to take everyone's land. No, there's enough wealth in Scotland. But um, then it might justify it. Because obviously um, Malcolm and Macduff going against Macbeth is justified on, uh, on you know, the pure, purely um, uh, political and moral level. Um, but then you couldn't have Macbeth saying... Even if, even if other people thought Macduff was a bad king, you couldn't have Macbeth saying, he's a great king, but I'm going to kill him anyhow. Yeah. But if that's the case, they will seem, seem really odd with um, <clears throat> the prophecy of the three witches. Because after uh, the three witches prophecy, um, it seems that Macbeth is driven by his own desire to be, be king instead of, you know, to... To, to do justice in yeah, the world. Right, and exactly. If, if the desire and the sort of um, wish to do justice gets combined together, um, somehow seem a bit odd to yeah, yeah. use as a justification yeah. to, you know. Yeah, I mean, you, you might see that, a version of that in Richard II, where the person who wants to become king also is at least partly represented as doing what's good for England. Um, that is because he's Gaunt's son, and Gaunt has, had, has given that great speech about what a bad way of being a king um, Richard's way of being a king is, and then um, Bolingbroke's way is clearly better. Um, or you might even see it in Hamlet, where Hamlet thinks he has lots of, or we think he has lots of justification for going against the king. But in Hamlet, one of the things that will have to ratify his doing it for unselfish reasons is that he has to die. It has to be a tragedy. It's much harder to have the main story being someone attempting to kill a king or to unseat a king, um, to have that be the main story and to have the person successful uh, just then come out as a winner. Uh, If you come out as a winner, that then starts looking like your motive to come out as a winner, and that's the wrong motive. So Richard II, it may work, but, um, I mean, it doesn't for me, but I have a somewhat minority view of Richard II, but it may work for a lot of people. Um, yeah? Is, like, is that not what Macduff does, though? Like, he comes and he kills the king? Like, yeah, but he's he not going to be king, king but, like, and he's already gone through his tragedy. So, yeah, I mean, that's a good point, but, uh, but it matters that he's already diamondized. The way in, uh, again, in the Patrick Stewart version, which I think may be the best bath I ever saw, which is why I keep recurring to it, um, the scene in which Ross comes in to tell him that his wife and babes have been killed, um, it's an amazing scene on stage because um, the... Let's, let's just look at it briefly, and I'll tell you um, how, what happens between two lines. Um, so this is Act 4, Scene 3. And uh, 
<clears throat> so Ross comes in. This is around line two hundred. Um, Ross comes in a little. Uh, says a little before that. I have something else um, to say. Uh, this is line one ninety three. Would I could answer this comfort with the like. That is the comfort that that Malcolm has just given them is that Seward is going to help them uh, fight against uh, Macbeth. And Ross says, I wish I also had good news. What I could answer this comfort with the like, but I have words that would be howled out in the desert air where hearing should not match them. So what I have to say, I wish I were saying to the empty, to empty spaces where no one could hear it. Macduff, what concern they, that is the words, the general cause, or is it a fee grief due to some single breast? So um, that's, a, that's a kind of a, me, a legal metaphor. Feet grief means that it's going to go to a particular person. Um, no mind that's honest, but in it share some woe, though the main part pertains to you alone. So here everyone is going to see how miserable Macduff is going to be, and if they're honest, they're going to feel for him. Nevertheless, it's really him. If it be mine, keep it not from, we, from me quickly. Let me have it. Ross, and here Ross again is a kind of messenger. Let not your ears despise my tongue forever, which shall possess them with the heaviest sound that ever yet they heard. Hmm, I guess at it. And then he does. Ross, your castle is surprised, your wife and babe savagely slaughtered. To relate the manner were on the quarry of these murdered deer to add the death of you. So um, just boom, like that, in a line and a half, he tells Macduff the terrible news. Your castle is surprised, your wife and babe savagely slaughtered, and then he's not going to say more. So in the Patrick Stewart version, at that point, Macduff inhales to say something, and then he exhales, and then he just stands there. And every three or four seconds, he inhales the way actors do, you know, a large inhale. And then he exhales. And the second time I saw it, I timed it. Um, and it was 50 seconds, not a full minute, but 50 seconds of silence where we keep, and the audience keeps waiting for Macduff to say something. And he doesn't. And, you know, he does what actors do, which prompts the audience to listen to what he's about to say. And then he doesn't say anything. And um, it's just amazing to see him floored that way. Mm -hmm. Then finally, Malcolm. Merciful heaven, what man ne'er pull your hat upon your brows, give sorrow words. So that's actually telling you that he hasn't said anything. The grief that does not speak whispers the o'erfraught heart and bids it break. And then finally, Macduff speaks, my children too? Wife, children, servants, all that could be found. And I must be from thence. And then he still can't believe it. My wife killed too? I have said. Malcolm, the schmuck, is basically saying, okay, it's bad, but now, you know, be comforted. Um, <laughs> Let's make us medicines of our great revenge to cure this deadly grief. Good. Now, you know, just kill Macbeth. Here's, here's another reason. And then Macduff's famous line, he has no children. And then, all my pretty ones, did you say all 
Oh, hell kite. All, what, all my pretty chickens in their dam at one fell swoop? That's where that phrase comes from, by the way, doing something at one fell swoop. That's Shakespeare's coinage. Um, and, um, <laughs> ooh. Very surprised about that. <laughs> yeah. Wow, what a writer. Um, so, um, all my pretty ones is amazing, but he has no children. Who's the he there? Macbeth. Or Malcolm. Okay, what's, why Macbeth? Um, I think we spoke last semester about revenge being never justified because you're never murdering the person who, like, like, like the real revenge for Hamlet would be to actually murder uh, Claudius's father to get back at him. So here the real justifiable revenge would be to kill Macbeth's kids, not Macbeth himself. Yeah, how can I do to Macbeth what he did to me? He has no children. Okay, why Malcolm? Because um, Malcolm is like... Great, now we're just gonna go kill Macbeth. Like he's like, calm down, dude. And it's yeah. like you don't get it. Yeah, yeah, it's you sad, can't but understand this because Malcolm is like, now we both have reasons to kill Macbeth because he killed my father and he killed your children and your wife. So we'll just like head back up to Scotland and we'll murder him. Yeah, yeah. So, so that is that's an amazing moment, and um, you know, in a way, the audience doesn't have it have a chance to decide who the he is, but. What that means then is that it's the no children part, which makes it impossible to um, for Malcolm. I mean, sorry for Macduff to find a partner or to find um, a, a friend in this situation. Um, that's what's impossible. Okay, what I just want to say about Lennox is that one wrong reading of Lennox is that Lennox is actually a spy of Macbeth's and that the things that he's saying, he's saying, I, I was astonished to read this in a footnote this time. I'd never heard that before. But that he's saying what he's saying because he's actually trying to get people, um, trying to draw out people who might go against Mac Macbeth so that he can um, get them into trouble. And Macbeth says, I have a spy everywhere. Um, but that would make just that scene and Lennox's um, um, anger in that scene, that would just so denature it that I don't think that can be true. Did you want to say something? No. Okay. Um, all right, you guys have a good weekend. Act five. Great show. Great play. All right. Two thumbs up. Yes, Way up. Thumbs up. Okay, good. Yeah.